live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. Welcome back to all our listeners. We're back from our winter break and onto a three-week series on Holocaust Reflections, you've named it. I understand that the first and the next two are quite different, you mentioned to me earlier. Yes. So tonight we will focus on two people, both women. Each was part of a small group who provided resistance. But first to mention that this podcast on the 10th of Teves is Le'ilui Nishmas Rabbi Yitzchok Rosenthal, a Talmud of the Nitri Yeshiva and a Holocaust survivor who became the Rosh Hakol in Berlin and then Munich. He was a Vizhnitzer Chosid and a supporter of Zionism, and he passed away on this day. So our first narrative ends in many ways on the 7th of October 1944 when the Commando, who were the group of mainly Jews whose daily task it was to take the bodies from the gas chambers and burn them in the crematoria, took makeshift bombs made of dynamite and blew up the gas chambers and crematoria number four, which remained unusable for the rest of Auschwitz's existence. And unfortunately, although unsurprisingly, all the Zonderkommando involved were killed very soon after. But where did they get the dynamite from? And the answer is, well, it lies with an incredible group of young girls, Jewish prisoners in Auschwitz, who in 1944 heroically decided to do something which would change the narrative of Auschwitz. Anna Hellman was born on December 31st, 1928, into a middle-class family in Warsaw, Poland. Her parents, Jacob and Rebecca, were both deaf, although all three of their children had normal hearing. Jacob owned a factory in Warsaw, which employed deaf workers to make wooden toys and crafts. And the family existed through the ghetto period. They were amongst the last to be deported from the ghetto and taken to Majdanek in May 1943, where the parents were murdered upon arrival. Six months later, Esther and Anna were sent to Auschwitz, where they were selected to work in the large munitions factory, located approximately a kilometer from the main camp. And this provided a measure of security and comfort, working indoors, away from the daily brutalities in Birkenau, away from the crematoria fueled non-stop by the transports coming from Hungary. So Esther and Anna are sisters. So Esther and Anna were two of the three sisters, correct? Yes. Now, for almost a year, the two girls worked there and they formed part of a group of Jewish girls carrying out slave labor within the factory. One of these girls had managed to keep her false identity as a non-Jewish Pole and found a contact within the Polish underground in the camp and told the rest of the group one night in August 44 that the Red Army had already surrounded Warsaw. 
And the Goals realised that at this speed, they would reach Krakow and Auschwitz in two or three weeks, which was an unbelievable prospect. But at the same time, they were obviously terribly afraid that before the Russians came, the Germans would simply kill off all their prisoners. But why was Auschwitz only liberated in January if they were ready in Warsaw by August, you just mentioned? Because the Soviet priority was Berlin, which is direct west of Warsaw. Krakow is south. Uh -huh. So this group starts putting together smuggled items, mattress, gasoline. They even secured keys to a tool shed, which contained rakes, hose to be used as, as weapons in, in defense. Now, they obviously had very limited options if it came to the Germans rounding them up for execution. And, you know, one desperate idea led to the next. But then what took place was almost spontaneous. A member of the Zonderkommando unit who was tasked with bringing to the crematoria the dead bodies of those who had died in barracks all over the camp, meaning he had access to all areas, told one of the girls in the munitions factory group, a girl called Rosa Subota, that because of the Russian army's advance, the Zonderkommando were organizing themselves to fight. And in fact, it was recorded after the war that the first of the Zonderkommando organizers was actually the capo of that unit, a Lithuanian Jew called Kaminsky, who enjoyed the trust of the SS men. But one evening in early August 44, the prisoners of the Zonderkommando working in Crematoria 1 were suddenly summoned, and the camp commander told them that this capo, Kaminsky, had been executed by firing squad a short while ago, and that uh, they now knew about the organization of attempted rebellion and uprising, and they would eliminate anyone who followed in Kaminsky's footsteps. And at that stage, the SS appointed a new capo, a German, a, a criminal, a non-Jew, which made things much harder. And now that the Russian army was nearing Krakow and the transports from Hungary gradually slowing down, 300 further men of the Zonderkommando in Birkenau were killed in that summer of 1944. So the men of the last group of Zonderkommando decided that, come what may, they are going to engage the SS in battle if the Russians come close. And all of this is told over to Rosa Sabota, who passes it on to her group of girls. And as Anna Hillman recorded, that night they were discussing it and they had an idea. They don't have any weapons, but they do have gunpowder. They were working in a munitions factory. If they could steal gunpowder from the Pulverraum and somehow smuggle it to the Zonderkommando, they could be used as explosives. Now, obviously, the chances of being caught during, after, were extremely high. But the purpose was revolt, at least if not for them, then for the rest of the camp's inmates. And so they came up with a plan. They would transport small amounts of gunpowder out after their shift ended, whoever could get hold of any. And on the way back to the camp... They would divide the powder amongst themselves and they made sure to be in the middle of the column walking back into Birkenau. Never at the end, never at the beginning. And if the dreadful word inspection 
would be mentioned, they would have enough time to unknot the little bundles and spread the gunpowder and mix it into the dirt on the ground. Because while the Nazis were looking for contraband, food or whatever, they definitely weren't looking for gunpowder. Now, think about this for a moment. Anna was 16 at the time. She was born in 28. What decisions were you making at 16? It's crazy how they matured. But how were they planning to get the powder from their barracks in Birkenau to the Zonderkommando? I actually heard this recently. They had the ingenious idea of placing the gunpowder in the prisoner clothing of those who had died, which meant that the Zonderkommando would now pick up these bodies and carry them back to the area of the gas chambers. But problems came sooner than expected, and the timing of the rebellion, so to speak, had to be suddenly accelerated. On Saturday morning, Shabbos, it was Sukkot, October the 7th, 1944, the underground organization learnt that the last group of the Zonderkommando was slated for extermination over the next few days. So a few of the leaders came together to try and work out a plan. And during these deliberations, the capo, this German from the Zonderkommando, caught on to what was going on, and he threatened the group, saying he would reveal everything to the SS. So they took him and threw him into the crematoria and essentially started the rebellion straight away as a result. And the prisoners dug up some hidden munitions they killed the two ss men nearby and then they split into two one group placed these dynamite bombs in the crematoria defending themselves from the ss fire and the others dealt with the guards at the perimeter fence and started cutting through the electrified barbed wire but the explosions And the sirens brought all of the garrison of the SS, numbering around 3,000 well-armed, and they surrounded the crematoria and concentrated their heaviest fire on the area, the trees behind crematorium number four, where the main group of prisoners were trying to defend themselves. By this point, crematoria four was in flames, But the SS men were more intent on suppressing the revolt. And the guard posts were so heavily manned that there was basically no possibility of escaping from the area. Although a small group of prisoners managed to kill six of the SS men and break through towards the Vistula River. And they managed to get away? No, no. They were tracked down. The the Nazis used dogs. They took refuge in a barn. The barn was set on fire with flamethrowers, so nobody survived. And once the rebellion was put down, the Nazis came after the girls with uh, a vengeance. They realized that some of the explosives had been made out of gunpowder. So they imprisoned quite a number of these girls, and three of the ringleaders, including Anna's sister, Esther, were heavily interrogated. And the three were released a few days later. Esther came back more dead than alive. She was black and blue from head to toe. The skin on her back was broken in stripes. She couldn't move. She couldn't talk. 
and uh, one of the other women there, Marta, and her sister Anna tried to help her. But the release was only a temporary thing anyway, while the Nazis gathered more evidence. And shortly afterwards, the three were taken again. And although they betrayed nobody and didn't confess to any crimes, they were sentenced to a public hanging. Now, they were in Block 11 in Auschwitz I. And the Kapo Yakov, whom we spoke about 18 months ago in one of the earliest podcasts, tried his best to help the girls as much as he could. He apparently was ordered by the camp authority to hang the girls, but he refused. He was trying to delay the execution in general, hoping that if he delayed long enough, the Russians would arrive first. And he was agonizingly close, but ultimately to no avail. And shortly before the execution, Yakov brought Marta a note that he had smuggled out from Esther, which said, I know what is in store for me, but I go readily to the gallows. I only ask that you take care of my sister, Hanka, Anna, so that I may die easier. And Yakov brought back Marta's response, which was a promise that she would never abandon her sister, and she was true to her word. And on January the 5th, 1945, the whole camp was made to stand at appell so they would witness the execution, although Marta managed to get Anna into the hospital so she wouldn't see her sister being hanged. And then on January 18th, less than two weeks later, the Auschwitz prisoners were sent on the death march. And as Anna subsequently recorded, it was Marta who dragged me all the way through the icy death march, through Ravensbrück to Neustadt. It was Marta who fed me, washed me, cuddled me and scolded me. We were liberated by the Russians on the 2nd of May 1945. I wrote my diary in Polish in June 45, barely six months after Esther's death. And in fact, there's a photo of Marta and Anna in Brussels in July of 1945. Now, these girls were unarmed, untrained, aware of the risks and the probable outcome. And they nevertheless took the decision to risk their lives. The public execution, as I mentioned, took place on the 5th of January, which was the 20th of Teves, Hashem Yenokim Domom. And many years later, Anna wrote a book about her life in English, it was translated. She always felt responsible for her sister becoming involved in the plot and therefore felt that at minimum her death should be given meaning by people discovering who she was, what she did, and the price she was required to pay for her actions. Wow, can't fathom such bravery. Very chilling and tragic story. Is she still alive? No, she died in 2011. She got married in 1947 in Israel and then moved in 1960 to Ottawa, Canada. And her husband, Joshua, became the principal of a Jewish high school. But following on to what you said, what's most incredible for me is how for 60 years after such a story, Anna lived unknown with no fanfare, you know, greatness walking amongst us 
just and there must be so many more that we'll never know about this we sort of flukishly ended up hearing about yep yeah there was a pair that escaped from Auschwitz in uh, April 44 one of them ended up you know a taxi driver no one you know really recorded much of his story until many many years later now our second and equally heroic person requires a little introduction the story of Jewish female couriers in Nazi occupied Europe it's a story that's not well known a story of incredible bravery exhibited by young Jewish girls, some as young as 15, who volunteered to be the lifeline between Jewish communities and ghettos throughout war-torn Europe. They would be disguised as non-Jews, transporting documents, forged IDs, money, weapons into the sealed Nazi ghettos. And the diarist Emanuel Ringenblum wrote in May 42, these heroic girls, the Chaika and Frumka, travel back and forth through the cities and towns of Poland in mortal danger every day. They rely entirely on their Aryan faces and on the peasant handkerchiefs that cover their heads. Without a moment of hesitation, they accept and carry out the most dangerous missions as though it were the most natural thing in the world. How many times have they looked death in the eyes? How many times have they been arrested and searched? And the word courier really doesn't do these women justice. They were much more than messengers because alongside information, they brought hope to Jews who would otherwise have been cut off from the entire world. They brought to them the decisions that had been made in other ghettos, which would help those ghettos in arriving at a conclusion as to what was the best course of action. Now, of course, Travel by train was prohibited for Jews. Radios were forbidden. So they were sealed inside the ghettos. And this was the only way to know what was happening out there on the other side of the ghetto gate. Why was it young girls chosen for this dangerous task? You mean rather than men? Yeah. There are a few reasons for that. Firstly, men who were out and about on the streets would generate suspicion. Why aren't they at work? Polish men had to do work. So it was much easier for women to stroll in the streets, you know, carefree, casually shopping. Secondly, obviously, if arrested, a Jewish man would be easily identified. The sign of his circumcision, his bris, would give him away. And finally, I guess, women were also more likely to speak the local language fluently without, you know, an accent or an inflection that would give them away. Right. And once the Germans began to exterminate the Jews the role of the couriers changed, realizing, as they did, that the plan was to kill all of the Jews of Europe. The Jews now warned communities where slaughter had not yet occurred, and they had to detail the mass murders. They had to become witnesses. They also smuggled Jews out of the ghetto, Although living on the non-Jewish side, the Aryan side of the city was very difficult. It wasn't as simple as you get out of the ghetto and you're safe. You needed to find an apartment, but much more than that, you needed to find documents, baptism certificates, passports, and money had to be supplied because these people were no longer working. Food had to be bought for them. You know, it's very difficult for us 
decades later to appreciate the constant overwhelming fear and danger in which these young girls lived and operated with all the different types of activities that they undertook, none of which had any guarantees and any knowledge of what the next hour would bring. They lived in a state of absolute abject fear and they went for it. They did it. We are going to focus on one of them, a girl called Bella Khazan, who was born in the Ukraine in 1922. In October 1940, she escapes the ghetto with a group of 10 people to head to Vilna, which was still independent at the time. And on the way, Khazan travels to her own hometown to see her family. It was actually the last time she saw her mother and five of her seven siblings. They were all slaughtered in July 41 by Ukrainian militia. And her group eventually reached Vilna on December the 31st, 1940. In mid-41, the Germans in Vilna began murdering the city's Jews, and Khazan, who was quite Polish-looking in appearance, volunteered to serve as a liaison between various towns. She became a courier. She even managed to obtain a passport of a Polish acquaintance called Bronislava Limanowska. And in addition to smuggling information, relaying money and weapons, she was given the job of securing a safe house in Grodna for couriers traveling between Vilna and Warsaw. And, you know, to conceal her Jewish identity, she is 18. She took to wearing a crucifix and attending church on a regular basis. And in Grodna, she undertook her most dangerous work. Because she was proficient in a number of languages, Khazan began to work as an interpreter for the Gestapo in Grodno, in their office. I mean, totally exposed position. But it gave her the opportunity to steal official papers and documents, which the resistance used to create forged documents and travel papers, which were life-saving materials. And one of the Gestapo members became infatuated with her and invited her to the Gestapo headquarters Christmas party. And this isn't some form of sort of legend, because not only did Bella attend in a room full of Nazis, she brought two fellow Jewish couriers to better establish their aliases as non-Jews, Lonka Korzybrodska and Tema Schneiderman. But it was at that party that the Gestapo took the picture of the three of them. It's an iconic black and white photo and is now on the wall of the Yad Vashem Holocaust Memorial. Unfortunately, Shortly afterwards, Tema Schneiderman would be captured in Warsaw and murdered in January 42. In early June 42, whilst in Bialystok, Khazan was sent on a mission to track down the whereabouts of the third of her other friend, Lomka, who had disappeared on duty. She was asked to take two handguns with her, but at the border crossing 
at the Malkinia railway station, Khazan was taken off the train and arrested. Gestapo men dragged her to a detention camp and interrogated her because they thought she belonged, given her false Polish identity, to the Polish underground. She was then transferred to the Gestapo headquarters in Warsaw, where she was severely tortured and beaten and was subsequently imprisoned in the notorious Paviak prison. After lying for several weeks in an isolation cell, she was moved to a quote-unquote normal cell of Polish political prisoners, and there, against the odds, she met up with Lonka, who had also been captured by the Gestapo, and from then on, the two managed to remain together. They were imprisoned in Paviak for five months, and the two were subjected to further torture, and finally, on November the 13th, 1942, they were sent to Auschwitz, and their prisoner card stated, return is not desirable. Did the Nazis know that they weren't Jewish? No. They both still identified as non-Jewish Polish political resistance members, uh, which still made it slightly easier for them. In fact, when Bella's son, Joel Yari, a professor at Hebrew U in Jerusalem, made a visit to Auschwitz in 2017, he found a prisoner photo of his mother displayed in an exhibit dedicated to Polish non-Jewish prisoners who had died in the camp, and she is still under that name Bronislava, the alias. Both the girls were sent to work in the fields, although Khazan was later given work in the women's hospital. Both of them caught typhus and were hospitalized, and whereas Khazan managed to recover, her friend's illness gradually worsened and as her son said in an interview Lonka died in my mother's arms on April 13th 1943 her last words that she told my mother were you will survive and you will tell our story and after she died so others in that barracks who were unaware that Lonka was Jewish they recited Christian prayers for her and they placed a Christian icon on her corpse so Khazan went to the chief SS doctor, which is dangerous, and begged him to be able to carry her friend's body to the morgue so it wouldn't be disposed of in the usual unceremonious way. Now, somehow the, the SS doctor, I guess, reluctantly agreed, and Khazan carried Lonka's corpse on the stretcher, waited until she was alone, and removed the icon and said, Kaddish, it's all that she could do. On January 18th, 1945, as we mentioned, when the Germans evacuated Auschwitz, Khazan ended up at the women's concentration camp at Ravensbrück after a death march. Then on April the 3rd, she was transported to the Tauscher forced labor camp near Leipzig one of six camps housing prisoners for factories which manufactured um, anti-tank rocket launchers. Because Leipzig in eastern Germany was an important centre for the Nazis' military industry. Each of these camps housed around 2,000 prisoners who were forced to carry out these dangerous and difficult tasks in the factories, and they were exposed to the American and British Air Force's regular bombing of 
Leipzig. In this camp, there was a doctor called Alexander Hermann, who was originally from Prague, who came through Theresienstadt and Auschwitz, and he was sent to the hospital barracks. And because Hazan had some experience as a nurse, she was also there. She came to trust him implicitly, and he was the first person to whom she revealed that she was Jewish. Now, she only arrives there on the 3rd of April. The Allies are very nearby, and by order of Hitler, no prisoner was allowed to fall into Allies' hands. So the concentration camp in the Leipzig area were evacuated between the 13th and the 15th of April. Thousands of prisoners are marched eastward, and to avoid any resistance, the Germans told the inmates that they were being moved out of the direct line of hostilities, but they were death marchers, and they were designed to kill off as many people as possible. In each camp, there were a few hundred sick patients who could not walk, so they were left behind because it would force down or would slow down the, the forced evacuation. And they would be left behind with a, you know, a small group of healthy inmates. When the Tauscher inmates were ordered to leave, so Dr. Herman asked Bella Hazan to stay behind. And as she put it, I was happy that it fell to me in the last days just to live amongst Jews. And if I died, to at least die amongst Jews. And the doctor and his staff spread sheets and white towels outside the hospital barracks and patented white circles and red crosses on the roofs and walls of the structures to indicate to Allied pilots that these were hospitals. And in fact, I have a photo where you can clearly see from an aerial photograph taken by the Americans that these sheets are there. But why didn't they just kill the 140 Jews before they left, make it much simpler? They didn't intend on them surviving because what happens is two days later, on the morning of April 18th, an SS liquidation unit had arrived at one of the other six camps at uh, Thekla. They rounded up all the sick prisoners who had been there, herded them into one of the wooden barracks, sealed the doors and set the structure on fire. Now, some prisoners tried to escape through the windows, but they were cut down by machine gun fire and only eight of the more than 300 escaped the massacre under the cover of the black smoke. Two of those eight managed to reach Taucher to warn them that they were about to do the same there and murder the 140 inmates. So Dr. Alexander Herman and his group decided that they need to try and reach the Americans. But the immediate danger was to avoid the Nazi killing squad to, to get out of the camp. So they, they literally dragged the patients out of their beds and led them to a nearby forest and camouflaged them with branches. And when darkness fell, this convoy of the weak and ill with their caregivers began to struggle towards the Americans. And the journey lasted throughout the night. Some actually begged to be left behind, but Dr. Herman insisted that they not give up. Towards morning, they spotted the American forces and sent two girls with a piece of white cloth and a soldier came towards them. He was completely shocked by the sight of these walking human skeletons. And a few minutes later, this soldier returns with an officer 
who, to their surprise, addressed them in Yiddish. He said to them, my name is Captain Winter, Shalom Aleichem. I am also a Jew. And they started treating them. And as Bela Hassan wrote in her memoirs, there was no sound place on my body. It was all sores, bruises, and full of lice. The Red Cross people helped us wash, dressed our injuries, and when they saw us naked, they cried together with us. And another survivor recalled, I woke up several times that night to make sure I wasn't dreaming. When I opened the barn door, I found a black soldier standing guard outside. As a smile spread across his face, I was overcome by a feeling of indescribable happiness. So this is part of the unknown story of these couriers. And, oh, and that's, just, that's just focusing on one of them. Just Can on you imagine? one. Yep. What happened yes. to her after the war? Did she? So she was sent to an American hospital in Leipzig to recuperate and then through Belgium to Paris, which is the first time she discarded her non-Jewish identity. She went to Rome, then to a Jewish DP camp in Italy. And for three months there, she was a counselor and teacher to a group of young orphaned girls. And in November 45, they boarded the ship. They uh, arrived in Haifa. And they were taken to a kibbutz there. In 1946, she married Chaim Zalushinsky, a Jewish brigade veteran and a journalist. And they had two children, Esther in 1947, Yoel in 1949. And in May 2018, Hazan was posthumously awarded the Jewish Rescuer Citation from the Bnei Bris International Organization in recognition of the devotion, courage, and heroism exhibited in rescuing fellow Jews during the Holocaust. And she passed away in January 18th, 2004, which is the 24th of Teves. And as her son said, she was so courageous, it is just unbelievable. But many of the stories are unknown, and only now are they coming to light she didn't tell her kids the stories that she what she went through some she only wrote about she couldn't maybe bring herself to speak about or it, it brought up also, too also many memories also very painful when you live a non-jewish yep. existence and yep. that's added pain to the story yep. But once again, what's really so unbelievable is that having lived a life of Messiris Nefesh, of fear, having been tortured repeatedly, having seen so many colleagues be killed, and then on top of that, having endured Auschwitz and the death marches, she just got on with life. She built a family. She was never publicly acknowledged or thanked. She was never recognized for her astonishing life posthumously it, 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 it's beyond words and although she survived most of the couriers did not although incredibly some kept diaries such as Gusta Davidson in Krakow which have been published recently and because of the date of their deaths are mostly unknown the 10th of Teves designated as Yom Kadisha Klali for those who lost family during the war marks the mostly unknown story of their bravery and heroism. Well, do we have any estimate of how many couriers there were? No, because so few survived, it's very difficult to know. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch. That was quite, I would say, depressing start to the, but again, very chilling and actually inspiring, yes. like you, like you end off. Um, sometimes, you know, people 
think should we listen to holocaust things it just put me in you know a bit of a serious or a bit of a sad zone but when you begin to appreciate what people actually did and what they gave choices up choices they made yep, the choices they make it's almost impossible and that should at least leave us grateful for the lives that we had so thank you for that and of course please remember to subscribe so that you don't miss another episode and keep sending your feedback to podcasts at jle.org.uk uh, we are going to address some questions in one of the next two episodes I believe the end of the second at the end of the second and keep spreading the word thank you Robert Hesch.